Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, church. And Merry Christmas to you all. Um, I'm so glad you've chosen to spend your morning here at Island Community Church. And I just love each and every one of you. And it's so good to be here. My name is AJ Robbins, and I've prayed this past week that you've had a restful and hopefully a reflective Advent season this year. Um, Here at Island Community Church, I'm blessed to be a part of our pastors cohort as we're a handful of gentlemen who are united in our call towards pastoral ministry and seeking and aspiring to the role of an elder, either here at Island Community Church or in a future church plant, either in our city or somewhere in the world, wherever the Lord would have us go. And I just want to extend gratitude to you all as our church body for entrusting me with this platform to share, and also a special uh, extension of thanksgiving to our elder team for this as well. So today, Sunday, December 11th, we're really in the, the middle of our Advent season. And by Advent, I really just mean that period of time that us as Christians set aside before Christmas to remember all that God has done in sending us his only son, Jesus, to be born as a newborn child. And as you can clearly tell from the title of this series, our heart behind everything that we would say and teach during our time in God's word is to really ask that God would restore to us a sense of wonder, that he would restore us in just the simple truths of who God is and what he's done, that he would refresh us and grant us deep down that sense of wow and awe when we consider God's kindness at Christmas. And part of the reason we've lost some of that wonder as Mitchell mentioned last week, is simply that we've become familiar. We're people who are just familiar, and we're bad for this in a number of levels. We often go autopilot with our lives, and sooner or later we become numb or apathetic to things that are important or things that even used to excite us. And Christmas and other holidays are no exception to this. We live in a world that is overstimulated with a scrolling culture, and we've become desensitized to extraordinary things. And unfortunately, that kind of numbness and apathy, it often rubs off on our relationship with the Lord, and we no longer wonder at Him as we used to. We no longer wonder at the magnitude of what He's done for us in Christ, and we're no longer blown away by His mighty deeds. But I've prayed for us that this week as a church, that Mitchell's message last week, that the arrival of Jesus gives us true hope, I've prayed that that would resonate in our hearts to give us confidence that the Lord certainly will refresh us, that he will restore wonder into our hearts, and that he'll do that even this morning as his word goes forth. And the title of today's message is A Humble King. A Humble King. Part of the living hope that we're called to as Christians usually involves, if not always involves, a season of waiting and more specifically, a season of waiting for the promises of the Lord to come in their fullness. In this season of Advent, and thinking about Christmas Day, maybe you yourselves feel that sense of anticipation, you feel that waiting, or maybe you have a child in your home that is just really anxious, wants to see Christmas Day come. And I was one of those kids back in the day, I could not wait. So I was thinking, and I did some searching back through uh, the old pictures, and I had a picture of me from Christmas. Me and my brother. 
So my name's AJ, but mama calls him Andrew. And that's my older brother, Zachary. You know, they dressed us up. I didn't wear those shoes too much. But that was me and my brother, Zachary, during Christmas one year. You know, and Thanksgiving Day would come, and I'd eat a ton, take a nap, watch the Dallas Cowboys play. And that was, ah, who said boo? (laughs) Some Eagles fans. You got to love your enemies, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Man. But Thanksgiving Day would come, and that was that. And then the next day, Mom started playing the, the Christmas music. And that weekend, we'd start to decorate, and I'd help. And by help, I mean I would just hand her ornaments as I watched more football. And by the end of the day, the, the Christmas tree would be up in the living room, and like little kids do, I would just look up and say, wow, Christmas, it's here, it's here. And days would pass by, and you know, me and my buddies, we'd talk about it at school, and the anticipation would just build and build. And then one day I came home, and there was something different. There were presents under the tree. There was presents under the tree. And I'd say, Mama, 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 did you, did you see those presents? And she said, Yeah, I saw that. Mama, 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 are any of them for, you know, maybe me? She said, Yeah, maybe. And it would just kill me to wait. And I'd be under the tree shaking the presents. Me and the dog would be sniffing around down there, <laughs> trying to see who, who had the big boxes. <laughs> And I'd try to hit my mom and dad with some kind of plea bargain that if if I was a good boy, can I open just one before Christmas? Just a small one, mom. And then Christmas Eve would come, and that was the one day of the year I actually went to bed on time. (laughs) And of course, I didn't sleep a wink. And then about five in the morning, I'd sprint down the stairs and be like, dad, mom, through the seal of the door, it's Christmas. It's wake up. It's Christmas. And soon after that, I would open up all those presents and get the biggest dopamine rush of the year. And I'd sit there in my little moment of holiday euphoria in, among shreds of wrapping paper. And that was that until next year. So for me as a child, and maybe that's one of your children now, or maybe that was you two back in the day, there were some painful days of waiting. It was just this visceral weight of anticipation. But for me as a child, All that I was looking forward to was the holiday treats and the Christmas carols and the the presents that were wrapped up in boxes under a tree. And that was it for me. But at that point in my life, there was certainly something that was missing. But in this Advent season, we too find ourselves in a season of waiting. Waiting and anticipating something so much greater than a material gift that I was looking forward to as a child. But for us, church, our waiting is for the ultimate gift, who is Jesus. And you see, this type of waiting is the same waiting that we see all throughout the Old Testament. The waiting for a true leader, a true judge, and a true king encompassed most, if not all, of the narrative of the Old Testament. I mean, if you think back, ever since the rebellion and fall of man from the Garden of Eden... God's people were looking forward to the the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. Ever since God's people wandered through the wilderness after being freed from Egypt, they looked forward to the the man that Moses prophesied of that would deliver them from their wandering. And ever since the days of Israel's kings, the greatest of which being David, they looked forward to the final king who would finally build an eternal dwelling place for God and his people. 
This is exactly what we see promised in the covenant that the Lord makes with David, one of Israel's kings, perhaps the greatest one. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you've been here with us at ICC for a while, you perhaps remember this Davidic covenant that we've studied in our series through the book of Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this, God promises David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But despite David's great and prosperous reign as king, he too was laid down in, into the ground and he did not live to see the day where his throne would be established forever. And then David's own son Solomon became king. He too did great things. But then the next one came and the next one went. The next one came and the next one went and none were established forever. So in seasons of flourishing and prosperity, in seasons of affliction and exile, God's people continued to wait for this king and his everlasting kingdom to come and waited for the day that it would be established forever. They looked forward to when the Messiah, God's chosen one, would bring final deliverance for his people and he would come to rule and reign and set all things right. And hundreds of years passed and they waited. They waited. But one day in a small town, there was good news of great joy that was for all people, not just for God's nation of Israel. And it was the announcement that the king, this king had arrived, and that his name was Jesus. And this, as we know, is what our Christmas celebrations are all about, the arrival of a king whose name is Jesus. In Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, which we traditionally think of as our Christmas story in scripture, God sends an angel named Gabriel to appear to a young virgin girl named Mary. She was in Nazareth, betrothed, similar to engagement with a man named Joseph, but they were not yet married. In verses 31 through 33 of Luke chapter 1, God sends the angel Gabriel, and he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There will be no end to this kingdom. In this moment, this news that the angel Gabriel brings, it's a promise of the coming fulfillment of all the promises that God made to David. That God is going to keep his promise to David through this chosen servant girl named Mary that God was going to send his, his own son, a much greater David, the king who was prophesied of from old, whose kingdom would finally be an everlasting kingdom that lasted forever. Yet Jesus, he was quite unlike any king that God's people had known before. And for us today, he's quite unlike any king we've ever known, nor will we ever know. You see, most kings, they rule and reign from a distance. Most kings are detached from their people. They may be handed reports or statistics about how their constituents are in need or are experiencing suffering, but they themselves never enter into it. Kings and presidents throughout our world, they often live in luxurious mansions with high, high fences all around them while their people may go without shelter. 
They feast on the finest of foods while their people may go hungry. They possess posses of bodyguards all around them at all times. They have all the money in the world to, choose, to spend however they so choose. And the examples could continue, but you see most rulers, they don't know or understand the real lives of their people. And it's become in such a way that our earthly leadership, kings and queens and presidents or otherwise, they've become so other than us. We feel like they've been fed with a silver spoon from their birth, that they're untouchable or unrelatable, and their lives are so utterly and completely different than the average Joes that there's no way that they could understand me or, or represent me rightly. But this morning, I want to show you a new way of kingship, a new way of being a king that is so different and so upside down that, than what we've come to know from the broken leaders of our broken world. And that new way of kingship, it's seen in Jesus. Jesus was a humble king, a humble king who described himself as gentle and lowly, one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And perhaps one of the most important scriptures concerning Christmas and the arrival of Jesus comes from Philippians chapter 2, if you'd want to go there with me. I hope that this perhaps is a, a text you've read before and you'd be willing to spend some time at this Christmas. We'll hang out in verses 6 through 8 today. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul exhorts the church in Philippi towards humility. And he exhorts them not motivated out of obligation or some form of self-motivated effort, but he exhorts them by looking to Jesus as the ultimate example of humility and servanthood. So let us read verses 6 through 8 to see the example of how humbly Jesus came for us. Referring to Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This morning, this text shows us the heights from which Jesus came and the depths to which he humbled himself in his birth, in his life, and in his service to others, service even to the point of death on their behalf. The text begins by saying that Jesus was in the form of God. And this is true even before baby Jesus was laying in the manger, before the angel ever announced his coming, before the shepherds ever, ever visited Christ was pre-existing in the form and in the exact nature of God. And he got to enjoy the privileges of face-to-face -face fellowship among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past. And the text goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means that before his arrival in human form, he did possess that communion with God the Father. And we'll learn more of this next week, but the idea that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh is reiterated over and over and over in Scripture. In the next book of the Bible, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he goes on to say that by him all things hold together. So this was Jesus' great privilege, 
and it was his great esteem prior to his arrival that he was there at creation with the Father and all of heaven beheld him. They beheld him as divine, perfect, supremely holy. So this church, this is the privilege that Jesus gave up in his arrival. Jesus forsook these heavenly privileges by his arrival and said simply, our humble king forfeited his heavenly riches. He forfeited his heavenly honor by taking on a flesh such as ours. None of his deity was lost, but humanity was added, by which he forfeited the unique privilege of face-to-face fellowship with God his Father. He forfeited the symphonies of angels and of heavenly hosts crying out to him, holy, holy, holy. He submitted himself to his Father's will that the glory of his heavenly honor would be removed and exchanged, exchanged for the likeness and the frailty of human flesh. So this church is what he gave up. Christ did not imagine that having equality with God should lead him to hold on to those privileges of his own at all costs. It was not something for him to grasp or to white knuckle, nor was it something that he should keep for himself or exploit for his own benefit or selfishly leverage for his own praise, although he had the authority to do that. The text goes on to say in verse 7 that instead of grasping on to these privileges, instead Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He took the form of a servant. The King James Version perhaps does well to translate this as he made himself of no reputation. The Son of God made himself a man of no reputation. He went from deserved 24-7 praise from the heavenly host to making himself a normal Jewish baby, one without renown or fame or recognition. And ultimately for us as Christians, Christmas is a celebration of when the master became a servant. And this is why Christmas must make us wonder. It's the one moment in history where the master becomes a servant, when the exalted one humbles himself, when he who reigns from the throne steps down to lift up those who are below him. And every moment of Jesus' arrival in human life was astonishingly humble. And by worldly standards, it was remarkably unremarkable at times. Just consider what we know from our Christmas story. Jesus didn't arrive into a royal family. He wasn't born in the big cultural hub of Israel. The King Jesus came into the world in the humblest of ways. God chose the mother of his only son to be a meek virgin girl named Mary, a woman who was not great or outstanding by any worldly measures. In her song of rejoicing after the angel announced the news to her, Mary cries out, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she says, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Mary was a woman of a humble estate. And we see this humble estate present itself in a very real way when the time came for Jesus to be born. While Mary was pregnant with Jesus, there was a decree from Caesar, the leader at that time, that that everyone in the nation was to be registered. We can kind of think of that as a census. So all of the people were ordered to go back to their hometown, and that's exactly what Joseph and Mary did. 
And so they mounted up and they went off to, to Bethlehem, where if you think back to our Old Testament, that was the place where David was anointed as king. And they went there because Joseph was descended directly from David. But while they were there, it came time for Mary to give birth. And I'm sure Mary tapped on Joseph and said, we got to find somewhere. And Joseph frantically looked around, tried to make provisions. But the scriptures tell us that there was no place for them at the end, at the inn. So Jesus wasn't born into the high-tech facilities like we got at Baptist or Methodist. He didn't spend his first few days at the Hilton or the Marriott. <laughs> Jesus was born in a manger among stables, a place where animals would stay. And you know, pop Christianity and American culture, they've almost, in a way, sissified the nativity scene. And you see it everywhere, and that's a really good thing. But of course, our, our little decorations don't do justice to the reality of that moment and what it may have been like. The king of the universe, he came and was wrapped in swaddling cloths, which are kind of like those baby burrito-looking things. They wrap them in. <laughs> I don't have my own kids. So. Um. And then scripture says they laid him in a manger. And all the nativity cartoons or figurines, they make it out to be so cute. And the scene almost looks cozy and inviting. And in the picture, baby Jesus is kind of like glowing. And most of us are like, oh, look at the manger. It's baby Jesus. He looks so cute. But in reality, a manger is really a polite word for saying a trough. Something that animals like sheep or pigs would eat out of. And I know we're in downtown Memphis, and some of us may be city slickers. And that's okay. Um, maybe we haven't had much exposure to livestock or stables with a farm. But you see, me, I'm from East Tennessee. Uh, my grandfather, he grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina. So he was a truck driver most of his life. But the last two, two decades of his life, he retired to Greene County, Tennessee, East Tennessee. And there he was a farmer. There he raised some crops, but mainly he raised livestock. Lots of cattle, goats, sheep, few pigs, one donkey. And he'd have me work there in those stables and pens. I didn't volunteer, I was forced, but... <laughs> and if you visited one of these stables, you would realize, huh, these animals aren't so cute. And actually, they're really dirty. And actually, they really smell like manure, which is a polite way of saying poop. Don't tell Baird I said poop. And <laughs> I share that to say that the place where Jesus was born into was probably a whole lot dirtier, a whole lot smellier, and way more humble than we could perhaps imagine. And I did some Googling. I got curious about this. I probably Googled manger in the time of Jesus or something like that. And this is the most consistent picture I found. This is probably the type of manger or trough they would have laid Jesus in. It doesn't look so pretty or comfortable like all of our pop culture pictures make it look like. And I was thinking, I started thinking about the moms of ICC. So say you, you had your baby, you brought him here on a Sunday morning, you know, he's sleeping, and you go back to our children's ministry. 
spaces and you see smiling Miss Leanne and you see all of our good looking volunteers and you say, good morning. And my baby boy, he's sleeping. I say, oh, come on in. We got just the place for him. And if they show you that, <laughs> you're not giving us your baby. <laughs> I mean, come on. If we had that in the back, they'd shut us down by Monday morning. <laughs> but this, this is how low Jesus went. He left the comforts in the perfect place of heaven and laid himself here, a place where animals eat their food. What king? What king has ever done that? We should be filled with awe and wonder simply at the nativity scene. And concerning Jesus' family, Jesus' mother and earthly father, they were not of the nobility or the social elite or among the rich. And we know this from scripture. In the law of Moses, following the birth of their firstborn child, Jewish parents were to offer a lamb as a burnt offering to the Lord, similar to an act of dedication for him. But scripture gives us an exception to this law, that for parents who couldn't afford it, there was an alternative, which was to offer a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. And scripture tells us in the next chapter of Luke that this is all that Jesus' parents were able to afford. Not a lamb, but simply two turtle doves and a pair of pigeons. So we know that Jesus wasn't entering into the likeness of man as some pampered prince. He wasn't living in the comforts of a castle, but he entered into the world through poverty and with deeper humility than any of us have ever experienced. And however low Jesus went in his birth and in his time as a child, what I believe is even more awe-inspiring is his life in ministry. Our text in Philippians 2 says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. On earth, by their status and their power, all kings and presidents have their people work for them. They have their people pay taxes to them. They have their people fight their battles for them. On earth, the king is the one who sits surrounded while his servants work. Yet this is not the kingship of Jesus. What defines Jesus' kingship is the fact that it was a conscious act of putting himself in a lowly servant role for the good of others. Jesus even professes to his disciples that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus' humility was not a sense of a defect or an imperfection in himself, much like oftentimes ours is. But rather, it was a sense of so much fullness within himself that he so chose to put himself at the disposal of others for their good, not his own. His humility was a voluntary lowering of himself to make the height of his glory available for normal, everyday people like us. And unlike any king in the, the books of history, Jesus entered into the suffering of his people. He did not feel pity from afar. But Jesus had a specific heart for engaging the least of these, our brothers. He had a heart for engaging the outcast, touching the sick, giving food and drink to the hungry and the thirsty. And Jesus preached a message about him and his kingdom that is so radically different than what our world teaches. Our world teaches us, church, that it's a race to the top, 
that it's a dog-eat-dog world and I gotta get mine. The world promises that true fulfillment is found at the pinnacle of our career, at the top of our class rank, among the cultural influencers or among the social elite. But Jesus teaches something different. Jesus teaches it's a race to the bottom. Jesus says it's a race to the bottom. And scripture records Jesus' disciples basically arguing about who is gonna be greatest in the coming kingdom. And notice, Jesus does not rebuke them for wanting to be great, but he has to help them and, and renew, them, renew their mind about how they understand it is how to be great in his kingdom. Jesus replies to their arguing and says, whoever desires to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus was bringing about a different kingdom, a kingdom where its greatest citizens are its most unnoticed servants. It's upside down. The greatest are the ones who aren't in the spotlight. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor, the sorrowful, and the persecuted are valued above the rich, the recognized, and the powerful. Church, so many of us at ICC are so incredibly gifted, and we are high-achieving, high-performing individuals who are super-driven, and Scripture affirms this desire to work hard and to be great, and I'm so glad of it. And I myself, church, I want to be great. I want to be great in my ministry. I want to be great in my schooling, in my career, and in my relationships, but I'm far too quick to lose sight of the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. I'm too quick to want to receive recognition, recognition from some doctor at school that tells me, great job, AJ, you're good at this. Or even here today, wanting people to affirm anything that I would say in a sermon. And if this, this motivation to be recognized is the basis of my motivation, then I've missed the point. I've missed the point. For in Jesus' kingdom, the greatest among us on Sunday mornings is not anyone who may come up here on stage and be seen or applauded for. It's not he who stands up here in a spotlight and preaches. But I think that according to Jesus, the greatest among us on a Sunday morning are those who have chosen to give up the privilege of receiving from worship and time in God's word and choosing to go love children in the back. Or I think of our hospitality volunteers who get here an hour early before any of us show up to go pick up trash and put out parking signs so that people feel welcomed and warm. Or I think of our prayer volunteers who on weekdays when nobody's watching have silent prayers of intercession for people in our church and none of us know about it. Or I think of our media team, the people who are always behind the camera serving us when people are away. I mean, the media team is so humble, they wear all black so that, so that they think we can't see them. You know? <laughs> and I think of our security team, men who uh, forsake the privilege of being in here with us to serve us by keeping our worship environment safe and distraction-free. Now, these are examples of true humility in the way that it's meant to be understood. Humility is an orientation away from self and towards others, a valuing more of others than of myself. 
And it practically presents itself through serving them faithfully in the shadows, whether they realize it or not. It's a heart for others rather than self. This is true humility. The the message that Jesus brings about his kingdom is good news to our weary souls this morning. It's good news this Christmas. But it's only good news if we're able to enter this perfect kingdom. There's a reality that the Bible says that God resists the proud, which is the opposite of humility. And that's because our pride, it it plagues our human condition. Our pride, it causes us to rebel against the statutes God has put forth for his kingdom. It causes us to selfishly hoard up what's been freely given to us rather than share it with others. It causes us to be puffed up with expectation that I should be served rather than I myself stooping low to serve others. And this pride in our souls, it exiles us from God's kingdom. The place that we're designed to one day rule and reign with him. The place where our souls are meant to be satisfied ultimately. But to redeem his people and to bring them back from their exile, Jesus did something that no king has ever done before. Verse 8 of our text tells us this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just come preaching a message about an upside down kingdom where the humble are exalted with his words only. He lived that message. All other kings have his people die for him. But Jesus, our humble king, chooses to die for his people in the humblest of ways. They stripped our king of his garments. They scoffed at him. They mocked him with a crown of thorns. And in an act of naked humiliation, they hung him on a tree. And Jesus, in his unending humility and submission to his father, endured the shame of the cross to redeem his people. He did it with a heart to bring them home out of their exile, to break the shackles of their pride and rebellion, and to serve them by offering them a free gift of salvation. Jesus' death and resurrection, it secures eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God for any and for all of us who would come to him today. But to secure that prospect of everlasting life with him in his kingdom we too must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. And I'm so glad our children came to bless us with worshipful singing. For in that moment, we beheld childlike humility, purity, weakness, and simplicity. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And later he goes along to say, Unless you become like children, you'll by no means enter that kingdom. So we must this morning and in this Christmas season humble ourselves to become like little children. Little children who come confessing their need to their father, admitting dependency on him. And let us not come in our own strength trying to impress him or add anything to him, but rather come in humility and in the weakness of repentance just asking to receive from a humble king 
who has a heart to serve and to give freely to anyone who would open up their heart to receive it. God's word promises to give grace to those of childlike faith and humility. So let this morning just be a time where we sit and receive from our king. And for us this Christmas season, we are to do as our king has done among our friends, with our family, with our church. Verse three of chapter two says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So that's what we are to do as Christians, to walk humbly with our God, putting others before self, just as Christ has done for his church. And I've prayed that our hearts will be filled with wonder in the coming days as we reflect on Jesus, our humble king who came for us. And I'll leave you with the words of 2 Corinthians 8, which I think rightly summarize the life of our humble king. God's word says, For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Our humble king came, became poor so that we could inherit the riches of his kingdom now and forevermore. And our humble king has finished the work. And because he has finished the work, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm so grateful for this humble king. Pray with me as we close. Heavenly Father, we come to you as children. God, not coming in our own strength. God, not coming to add anything to you. God, we come just confessing need. Oh Lord, we're desperate for your mercies. And we're so dependent upon your grace, Father. Not only to save us, but to sustain us, Lord. And I repent individually and collectively of any pride in my heart, Lord. Father, teach me childlike faith. Teach us to rely on you more fully, God, and to entrust all of our lives unto you, God. And Lord, we look forward to your return, Lord, and we say, come soon, Jesus. Come soon, King Jesus. But if you must tarry, Father, make us faithful children. Make us faithful servants, Lord. And like your word says, let us do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Father, let us count others as more significant than ourselves. We're desperate for you now, Father. And I'm so thankful, God, that you'll meet us here with your new morning mercies. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.